Hi, and welcome to the Midlife Feast, the podcast for women who are hungry for more in this season of life. I'm your host, Dr. Jen Salib Huber. Come to my table, listen and learn from me, trusted guest experts in women's health, and interviews with women just like you. Each episode brings to the table juicy conversations designed to help you feast on midlife. My guest on this week's episode of the Midlife Feast is Dr. Jordan Robertson. She's a naturopathic doctor who practices in Ontario, Canada. And if you follow her on Instagram or anywhere else on social media, you know that she brings so much helpful and useful information to women about women's health. And I knew that she was the perfect person to interview and have this discussion around hormone testing in perimenopause and menopause. Because so many women come to me and other providers wanting to know about their hormones, how they can be tested, and wanting to know and use that information, not only for diagnosis, but for treatment. And as I've said before, and you know, as I've shared on social media, there really are some very important limitations to how and when hormone testing should be used. So if you have questions about blood testing, saliva testing, urine testing, when they should and shouldn't be used, and want information that you can take back to your healthcare team, listen in because this is the episode for you. Okay, so let's get started. So Jordan, welcome to the Midlife Feast. Thanks so much for having me, Jen. I love the name of your podcast, by the way. Um, yeah, I agonized over the name for a long time. As many people in my uh, circle know, I went through many kind of ideations of what I wanted it to be. And uh, it was over lunch with a almost stranger to me as I threw out these uh, ideas and she immediately said the feast. I love it, the feast. And so I went with it and I've had no regrets, but thank you. Okay, so we are talking about hormone testing, and specifically the three big myths that I hear from women. I'm sure you hear from women too. And just trying to give everyone a little bit of digestible information. I throw in as many puns as I can. Uh, Digestible information that they can use when making decisions about their health with their healthcare team. So disclaimer, Both Jordan and I are naturopathic doctors, but nothing that we're giving here is advice to you as an individual, as a listener. But please do take this information and talk to your naturopathic doctor or medical doctor or nurse practitioner or whoever is in your circle care, uh, your circle of care in helping you make decisions about hormones. So, okay, a woman in perimenopause, let's call her Jane, comes into your office and she says, I'm having hot flashes. I'm waking up in the middle of the night. What hormones do I need tested? Does she need testing at all is the question. So what would you say to that? That's it's a really great question. And I, I think, you know, to take like one step backwards before I answer it, I do think that so because so many women feel sort of not validated or not well heard and well validated during this phase of their life, that they do want to grab onto some kind of piece of paper that is going to help them understand what's going on. And so as we start to talk about this and the value or not value of having your hormones tested, I don't want to take that that uh, passion and drive away from women that they want to get to the bottom of their problems or their symptoms. It's just that the, the 
the getting to the root of the problem probably doesn't involve lab work, which is different than lots of other medical conditions where you want to go to the doctor, you want to be tested, you want to get the answer on a piece of paper, and then you feel validated for your experience. That's not exactly what happens with perimenopause. And so I want to acknowledge that first, that I think if you have ever done testing, if you've ever asked for testing, you're not wrong. You're, I mean, maybe it's a bit of a misguided request, but it's because you're looking for some kind of hope or something to put your finger on for why you feel the way you feel. And I totally understand that. So starting. Yeah, absolutely. No. And I think that that is such a great point because yes, people, women, but people in general want answers. And our current medical system is very much set up based on objective answers often coming from lab work. And it makes sense that if you feel like something is off with your hormones, that measuring them would give you useful information. That's, I hundred percent agree with that. Yeah. And so, so one of the scenarios that I see too is, you know, women will often be told that things are okay because their hormones are normal. And we'll get into that in a little bit, but just, you know, thinking about what's wrong with testing estrogen, progesterone, and some of the other hormones when trying to work up someone who is showing signs of perimenopause. For sure. So the way that I put it to my patients, I'll say, you know, if we're going to do lab work, it has to kind of satisfy this two criteria for us. One it has to tell us something that we don't already know. And the second piece is it needs to either guide, direct, measure, or evaluate the treatment that we're doing for you. And, and that makes sense, right? We wouldn't want to run a test that we said, oh yeah, we already knew that. Like now we and now we have it on a on a piece of paper. Or if we did the lab test and we're like, oh shoot, that didn't really guide us at all, right? Like if we think about it from that perspective, we don't really run lab work willy-nilly. We don't look for needles in haystacks. We want the lab work to be this. Um, you know, sort of informed decision that we make that helps guide our understanding of a patient or helps guide the selection of their treatment. Now, for perimenopause, the challenge is, is that the diagnosis is mostly made clinically, meaning that we actually see, hear, you know, you maybe feel things. And that actually is what guides or informs our understanding of where you're at in that life stage. The lab work actually isn't the thing that um, that solidifies our understanding of that. So the definition of perimenopause is that you're having some symptoms, including, you know, hot flashes or night sweats, maybe vaginal dryness, or that you're starting to experience cycle length changes by more than seven days from your norm, whether that's shorter or longer. The lab work actually isn't involved in that diagnosis. And so it's not really teaching us something we don't already know. If a woman comes in and her cycle length has changed and now she has some night sweats, running the lab work doesn't actually teach us anything. And quite often the lab work can be a little bit misguided because because your hormones are so different every day. And that's that's true of a, of a regularly premenstrual menstruating woman as well, or premenstrual, I mean premenopause woman, like our, our hormones are different every four weeks for sure. And sometimes even in the span of 72 hours, your hormone levels change. And in perimenopause, that's really no different. And if anything, the hormone fluctuations that happen during perimenopause are even more pronounced, which means it really depends what day of the week we send you on for that lab work with, you know, that will change the the number that we get back on that piece of paper. And that doesn't actually give us more clarity. If anything, it makes us more confused 
So if sometimes yeah. women will get lab work back and it appears for all intensive purposes like it's normal, but she knows things aren't normal. And so the lab work actually has like maybe taken something away from her a little bit in, in saying like, well, I don't know why you feel this way. Like your labs look fine. Um, but the diagnosis really should have been made clinically in the first place, not based off of those numbers. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one of the big things I think that um, is frustrating to women when they go to their provider looking for answers is that if their blood work is quote unquote normal, then any, you know, question of perimenopause as a possible diagnosis is sometimes dismissed, which is incorrect, because like you, you know, just shared, we don't need that as a diagnosis. Um, But also, I think that there's so much misunderstanding about what the hormone levels mean. So the reference ranges are really set up to evaluate a woman who is having regular cycles. And so we really only see those numbers routinely fall outside of the reference ranges if there's a reason other than perimenopause for why she isn't having a cycle. Right? Would you agree with that? Yeah, for sure. And the other thing that I will notice is that you know, let's say let's say that the woman does get her hormones tested, right? She's, you know, she's adamant, she's advocating for herself, she leaves with a requisition, and she brings me the numbers, right? So she's had the blood work done with her family doctor, her some other practitioner, and I say, well, what day of your cycle did you go for the lab work on? And she's like, oh, does it matter? Right. And so one of the, I mean, if we're going to use lab work, let's at least do it properly. And yes. we can see whispers of perimenopause in lab work. So I'm not saying it's not helpful. We can see whispers of perimenopause in a woman's lab work, but only if we've sent her on the right day of her cycle and only if we're willing to look at her lab work with that lens of looking for the change. And we can see it, but not if she goes on a random day and not if we don't interpret it properly. And so, yeah, lab work's not wrong. And and certainly, you know, you can find in research papers that we can say, okay, well, and when women are in perimenopause, we tend to see these trends in her lab work. But the actual practical sort of clinical application of the use of lab work doesn't usually follow those guidelines. And women go for lab work on any random day of their cycle. We end up not learning what we should learn from it. Yeah. And just as like a a little example from that recently, uh, someone came to me, had recently had some lab work done on the right day, on day three of her cycle. She had asked her family doctor to measure FSH, which is follicle stimulating hormone, which is a hormone that can tell us when someone is in menopause, but it's not all that useful for perimenopause. And it came back at 2.3, which on the surface, you would think, that looks really great. And that's nice and low. And her doctor even told her, Oh, you're definitely not in perimenopause, but you could even still get pregnant. But her estrogen levels were 1150. And that is a whisper of perimenopause, these high estrogen, low FSH levels, but it was literally just luck that we caught that, that, you know, that was something that could suggest that could whisper that maybe she was in perimenopause. But I would have still treated her as perimenopausal, even if we hadn't had that lab work. And I think that's kind of the the end message that you and I are both getting to. Mm-hmm. That's that second piece. Like, does it teach us something we don't already know? Like, maybe, right? Like, maybe it gives us an idea. But the other piece is, like, did, were we get, did we do anything different after we got this lab work back? Or were we going to treat your hot flashes and your mood and all of those pieces exactly the same way with or without the lab work? And in that case, it's not really that important that you go. And I certainly wouldn't delay treatment in favor of 
lab work. And that's a kind of an important piece that women sometimes when they get offered like, well, I'm having my hormones tested and I'm I'm having a transvaginal ultrasound, I'm just going to wait until I get those results back to do something. And I'm like, so you're just not going to sleep for like the next eight weeks while we wait for this lab work we don't need, right? So it shouldn't you shouldn't delay your treatment in favor of being tested. That's another kind of sort of important piece yes. around the perimenopause. Yes, definitely. And especially since, you know, that we're recording this episode in October, which is Menopause Awareness Month. And one of the big messages that I think all the people are trying to get out is that, you don't have to suffer. So please don't wait for blood work in order to seek help because it's probably not going to change how an informed practitioner would treat you. Okay. So I think we've, we have laid that one to rest and that's great. So um, let's talk a little bit about some of the other testing methods because we've been talking mainly about blood tests, but there are a lot of other testing methods, saliva tests, urine tests, dried urine tests, that many people do receive treatment plans and are prescribed, um, you know, different types of treatments um, based on those results. And I think that that can be confusing sometimes for patients because they sometimes don't understand the results either and what those results mean. So what do you think about all that? How long do we have? No. <laughs> Just kidding. I say that all the time when people ask me a question that I have so much to say about. I know. I'm like, okay, so first of all, um, so kind of to my first point, I would say you are not you know, gullible or wrong if you've chosen to have a point of care test done with a practitioner um, in hopes of trying to understand yourself and your symptoms. So let's just start there. Um, I don't think that those tests are well validated and I'll, I'll explain why, but certainly like sometimes when I start talking about this, women come out of the woodwork and they're like, I paid $300 for that test and you're saying it's a waste. Like, no, like it, it was part of your journey to try and figure out what's going on with you. And I, I completely understand and have a lot of empathy for that, but we really have to look at the, the evidence for whether or not those tests are helpful or not. And, and kind of remember where they belong in the scope of, of medicine, which, you know, in my opinion is kind of at the bottom of the list or maybe not even on the list. So we can measure hormones in lots of different ways. The question is, is it a reliable way to test hormones? Is it a diagnostic way of testing hormones? What those, um, and so estrogen and progesterone are like the last step of like a thousand step process, right? And so, yes, we can look for those things in saliva and we can look for those things in urine, but it really doesn't teach us from a diagnosis perspective why those numbers are what they are. And so if you get those numbers back and they're low, it really doesn't put us that much further ahead for understanding why they're low. And if we base an entire treatment plan on those two hormones being high or low or out of balance, but we've never explored the root cause for that, I still think you're kind of shooting in the dark with respect to getting support. I mean, I'm a diagnostician. Like to me, like I just want to know the right answer for why you're experiencing what you're experiencing. And those tests don't actually give us that. I mean, in, in the research, we call that sort of pre-test probability and post-test probability, meaning how how much does how much information does this test give us to confirm a diagnosis? And none of those tests have been shown to be valid ways of measuring perimenopause. So I just can't put any eggs in that basket. No pun intended. I use a lot of egg references when I'm <laughs> 
arguments. <laughs> I can't put any eggs in that basket when the, the science shows that it really does not teach us anything about that woman that is of value or that really informs how we support her. Yeah. And, you know, and it also kind of ties into that first point that, you know, just because we can measure it doesn't mean that it tells us anything. Right, and so, you know, yeah. And, you know, I think one of the, I think one of the attractive pieces or parts of those tests is that they offer a very individualized result. And that result is often used to come up with a very individualized plan. And it feels very aligned with what women are looking for because, sometimes it's hard to find people who are listening and actually hear what we're saying and aren't just trying to, you know, quickly get us in and out of an office. But, you know, it's like you're saying, those tests don't give us anything of value yet. Maybe in five years that may change um, when there's more data, but just because we can measure it doesn't mean that we should and doesn't mean that it means anything at this point. Yeah. Those hormones are part of like a multi-step process. And so if we truly want to understand what's going on with you, we have to test all of the steps. And you referenced FSH um, earlier. I would say like you have to have your upstairs hormones tested too, not just your downstairs hormones, because looking at estrogen and progesterone is not helping you understand. Are you in perimenopause? Are you having irregular cycles because you're dieting? Are you having irregular cycles because your blood sugar is high? We can't learn that just by looking at those hormones. And, And you're right. I do think we, and I do think every woman is a unique, beautiful unicorn who deserves to be supported in her own way. But that doesn't need to like the diagnostic part should probably be standard of care, right? Like that's not where we should apply the uniqueness. The uniqueness is how do we help support you in your unique life? Not how do we give you a unique lab test? Um, That's where individualization should come down to the strategy that we, that we employ with women, not the diagnostic technique. And what about hormone testing to measure treatment efficacy. So someone is prescribed uh, hormone replacement therapy, medical hormone therapy, menopausal hormone therapy, and they are advised to regularly get saliva tests to measure whether or not that is working. Is that something you have experience with? Um, No, because it's not really an evidence-based way of managing your care. Um, But I certainly have seen that um, be recommended. I mean, first of all, one of the challenges we have with saliva and urine testing is that we don't know how much treatment influences those numbers. It's not, it's not consistent, meaning that, you know, if we test you at baseline and it says your estrogen's low, your estrogen's probably low, right? Even if, if we test it in blood or saliva or urine, if it says low, it's probably low. The problem is like, how does that test change when we add estrogen to the patient as a medication? That's a part that we don't quite understand and we don't have enough research on. And so we may find that saliva levels you know, go up considerably when we give women estrogen, but maybe she still has hot flashes, right? Like they're not correlated that just because her saliva estrogen is now higher that now she feels miraculously better. I mean, it's even arguable whether or not we should monitor treatment with HRT with blood work 
at all, right? I think when we start talking about monitoring, we're really borrowing evidence from other areas of medicine that are looking at low hormone states in women and saying, okay, well, if women are struggling with disordered eating and their estrogen falls below a certain level, she has bone loss. Maybe this is the level we want to achieve in women with menopause, but that's still a lot of assumptions. The, the research in general on HRT does not use routine monitoring to change your dose. We actually just ask the woman how she's doing. Um, and that's how we should probably be monitoring, or at least that's what we think right now. Um, do we want to shoot for some estrogen level? I think we're probably going to learn that over the next 10 years and maybe we'll have a different answer. I know in the um, hormone replacement therapy for patients who are transgender, we're starting to look at numbers that help them with gender reaffirming therapy. And I think maybe our menopause understanding is going to maybe blossom, like knowing that we support those patients if we hit certain targets. But when we're looking at like the general population, we actually don't know if we should be rechecking hormone levels all the time once patients are treated. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really great point. Uh, and it will be really interesting to watch that. You know, and I think the, it, you know, kind of going back to what we said at the beginning, it's it's so relatable and understandable to want to know that something is working objectively. We're wi we're wired that way, right? But I think it is leading women down a path that is not going to make them feel any better to be continually measuring something and guessing what changes to their treatments might help um, instead of relying on how they feel. Yeah. Be because ultimately for right now, hormonal therapy, HRT is primarily indicated for symptom management. We're still just learning about all of the other things that may prove to benefit from short or long-term HRT. But right now we're primarily using it for symptom management. And so whether or not someone's hormone levels change on a test, if they're feeling good, if they're sleeping better, their mood has improved, their hot flashes have reduced in intensity or frequency, the number on the test isn't, shouldn't change that, right? So I think that that is another important piece that so many, you know, because if we think about how diabetes is managed or high cholesterol, there is such a tight reference range that people with those conditions really kind of strive for. And the whole team is always kind of focused on that range. So it makes complete sense that we would think, well, if I'm being treated for hormone deficiency, which, you know, there's some controversy around that language, because is it really a deficiency if it's happening at a stage of life when it should be, but certainly it's a low estrogen state, um, you know, shouldn't there be a marker that everyone is looking for? But the answer is no. So thank you for that. Yeah. I think that also like, it's interesting because I'll have so many patients where I'm like, okay, well, what do you want to accomplish in our time together today? And they're like, well, I just like, I want to know what my lab work says. <laughs> like, and I'm like, yeah, we'll get there. Like, but how are you feeling? Right? Like, what are you noticing? And they're like, well, what are the numbers better? Um, and I, I find that so interesting because it actually is moving women farther away from trusting themselves and from reflecting on their own experience if we're tying the success or failure of their treatment to a number on a piece of paper. Um, although we don't use paper anymore. You know what I mean, though, right? Like a number <laughs> on a PDF. 
Um, but it's taking it away from that, like that it's an actual experience that we actually are interested in. And it it's moving women farther away from trusting themselves and being able to communicate what their experience is. If we distill their perimenopause experience down to their estrogen levels. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I want to kind of finish this with talking a little bit about some of the exceptions to that. And again, this is not medical advice, but if anybody is listening to this podcast and you are in your mid to late thirties, you've had really regular periods and then all of a sudden they disappear and your best friend suggests, oh, you could be going into perimenopause. That's really young. It happens. It happened to me, but don't assume that it's perimenopause you know, if you're in your late 30s, early 40s, or if there's a sudden change in how you're feeling, or if there are other aspects of your health that are changing, whether that's a really stressful event or another illness, there are very valid reasons, too many to list in this podcast of why hormones should be measured. What I wanted to focus on with Jordan, because I just love how she teaches this to both practitioners and to patients and to people listening, is that hormone testing isn't the be all and end all of managing symptoms in either perimenopause or menopause, but can be useful in some circumstances if done right. Is that a good summary? That's a great summary. (laughs) (laughs) And because somebody always asks, but what about FSH? Everybody always says that they're going to measure FSH. This is a hormone like Jordan was talking about as an upstairs hormone. This is follicle stimulating hormone that in a woman in her peak reproductive years will tell the ovaries to start maturing some follicles. And that hormone starts to increase the closer we get to menopause because we're running out of follicles. So it's like the upstairs phone has to yell down a couple of stairs and has to yell louder to get the people on the bottom floor to listen. So when that hormone reaches a level somewhere in the mid 20s for most labs, that tells us that chances are you're in menopause or very close to it. So and that number can rise 40, 50, 60s for some women um, as they get into menopause. And two measures of those six weeks apart that are both above 23 or 25, depending on the lab, confirms menopause. Um, but that's really the only time that we can use something like that, um, unless you have another use for it or anything to add to that. No, I would say like there's certainly other areas of um, women's health that we maybe look at FSH levels and I would yes. maybe more picky about those numbers. So for women who are trying to conceive in their 30s, oh, yes, I definitely sure. want to see that number be in a more optimal range um, than, you know, 25, it's, you know, that's, we're definitely talking about that perimenopause, menopause, but we, we maybe get a bit more uh, particular about it when we're trying to conceive because we don't want Absolutely. our brain to be yelling at our ovaries if we're trying to fall pregnant. Um, but no, I agree with you completely. Yeah. So anything else that you would add to the myth conversation? Um, I, I mean, I love sort of busting that myth that women have to wait until they're menopausal in order to seek treatment. I think that's a really important one. Historically, we treated women, you know, and, and I think, again, labels really matter. The language we use to describe this experience for women matter. Women will be in, in you know, in the chair in my office and say, and when I do their lab work, they say, well, am I menopausal? right? Like, like they're waiting for like permission almost for (laughs) their experience. Um, and I want to change that conversation a little bit that, yeah, like the, the true definition of menopause is that you've now not had a period for the last, uh, 12 months, but 
you know, those last 12 months weren't so great. And maybe the last three years weren't so great either. Um, I don't want women to feel like they have to get through some kind of like gatepost in order to be supported with their hormones. You can have, I mean, I'm 39 and I have um, night sweats during, you know, the low estrogen phase of my cycle and have to be supported for it or I choose to be supported for it. Um, And so I don't want women to feel like they have to wait until a particular moment in time in order for them to seek support. And it doesn't always have to look like HRT. There's lots of things that can support women. But again, this idea that, and I think because so much of the information women get about their womanly experiences from the generation above, they didn't do menopause that great. Um, and so I would really like us to have a different experience than our mother's menopause. Um, and part of that is changing like the language and that the narrative around when women deserve to be supported. Because I think it's if you feel unwell, you deserve to be reported, full stop, right? Um Yeah. I mean, perimenopause is eight to 10 years, average of four to five. But for most women, those kind of middle perimenopausal years are the most symptomatic. Um, You know, I am turning 45 in April and every period that I have, I don't know if it's my last. I'm definitely kind of perpetually in that waiting room of menopause. And uh, the last six months have probably been the best that I've had (laughs) because I'm kind of just consistently low now, except every now and then I get a little shot of something, something. And, you know, but, you know, prior to that, it was like, what the bloody hell is happening every month, you know, and it was awful. And I didn't know, you know, what was going to happen. And so, you know, I think that we hang our hat on menopause. But like you said, it's 12 months after your last period, it's essentially a day that marks 12 months, because everything before that is perimenopause, and everything after that is postmenopause. So, um, you know, I think if we start focusing on the transition, that menopausal transition as being when women should seek support, if they're feeling uncomfortable, if they're not sleeping well, if they feel like they're going crazy, um, and for reasons of, you know, postmenopausal health too. So thinking heart health and bone health and brain health and skin health, and how can we like continue to thrive in postmenopause and not just survive? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think if I can like share one more myth there, I also think that you... I never want women to feel like they can separate their experience from their hormone experience. So your hormones may not be to blame for your uh, mood changes or your hair falling out or whatever it is, right? Like the hormones may not be like the ultimate culprit, but we can't separate a woman's health experience from her hormonal experience because Every mental health condition is worsened under the pressure of changing hormones, right? Most physical symptoms, whether we're talking migraines or IBS or even joint pain, have are under increased pressure during um, during hormonal transitions. And so, even if you just have migraines or you just have whatever, we can't separate those two things actually. And so. I always want women to be willing to look at their, even their chronic health conditions through the lens of changing hormones, because it does put a lot of pressure on your immune system, on your nervous system when we undergo the rapid fluctuations at perimenopause. And so um, I want women to know that that's important to look at their, their health through that lens. 
Such an important message. And for anyone who wants kind of a big picture overview of the changes, see episode one and two for the hormone soup recipes, where I treat you to far too many analogies, but uh, people seem to love it. So um, just to kind of get a sense of how everything changes. And there's a reason why you sometimes feel like a completely different person. So I can't thank you enough. And I know that I will be pestering you to come back at some point to talk about something else. But I ask every guest for what they think is the missing ingredient in midlife. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. I think the missing ingredient is community for women and this, and for this conversation to be one that's had, um, you know, where women can share that vulnerability and share their experience and feel like they aren't alone in their, in their midlife. Um, we say to women, like, the woman before you in the waiting room and the woman after you in the waiting room is having the same, you know, sort of womanly human experience that you are. It's a very isolating um, time, I think, in a woman's life to be having these sort of secret symptoms that in a changing body and maybe a changing mind um, that's influencing the way she feels, her confidence, the way she shows up at work. I would love for that conversation to be more explicit and open. And I think we get there through having some sisterhood through that experience and, and sharing, um, which is why I'm so interested in sharing on platforms like this, Jen, and, and talking even about my personal experience, because I think that that's an important one. Absolutely. And it's, you know, I think has the greatest therapeutic value when you hear someone else's story that resonates with your own, even if just by one or two little things in common, it makes you feel less alone and makes you feel like there's hope, which is um, such an important thing. Thank you so much, Jordan. And um, I know that our listeners will love everything that you had to say about busting these hormone myths. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Midlife Feast. For more non-diet health, hormone, and general midlife support, click the link in the show notes to learn how you can work and learn from me. And if you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, please consider leaving a review or subscribing because it helps other women just like you find us and feel supported in midlife.